In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts. Help us to discern what it is that you want us to know and understand and accept tonight. Help us to make sense out of some of these minutiae laws that we are going to be covering in this section. But as we've said before, the commentary in this particular book that is probably more important than the scripture words. Nevertheless, we ask your blessings so that we might make sense out of it as it applies to us today. So we ask your blessing and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I see we have a distinguished guest back there tonight. Just happened, he just happened to be in the neighborhood. <laughs> okay. Tonight we're going to be covering the end of the main part of the book of Deuteronomy. That is the part that is probably the oldest. Chapters 21 through 26 is what we'll be covering tonight, but it's really chapter 5 through 26 that is the main part of this book. Okay. The part that was probably written, as I've said before many times, in the 9th or 8th century B.C. The first four chapters and the remaining chapters, 27 through 31 or 2, whatever it is, uh, were probably written after the Babylonian exile. Now, how many of you, as you're reading through these particular chapters, thought, my God, how does this stuff apply to us today? <laughs> because much of it uh, really is sort of obsolete, not only for us, but uh, for the Jewish people too. But what is important, I think, to really understand is what is the explanation for some of these things. And what I want to do tonight is to take some of the main points, not everyone, because uh, some of them just really don't make a lot of sense. Uh, and, of course, I was besieged with a number of questions the moment I came in tonight uh, relating <laughs> to that. You know, how does this apply to us today? So what we're going to do is take some of the main items and discuss them and then try to see how they apply to us today or how they might be representative of some of the things, the ideas and customs that we have today. Okay. Before we begin, is there anyone that has any burning questions that we have to get covered? Okay. Let's begin in with chapter 21. And in the section that is called the expiation of Untraced murder. All right. Now, this may seem like superstition. And it was. Remember the people of this time 
departed a great deal from strict observance of the Mosaic law and wandered into all kinds of idolatry and apostasy and strange customs and traditions. All right. And you got to remember, as we've said over and over and over, but it's the only way that you can interpret this book properly, is that the writers, the Deuteronomists, were really pushing a cause for a cause for a good reason. And that is they recognized that if the people, particularly the leaders, continue to lead the people astray, that they as a nation were doomed. And of course, that was proven a century later. In 722, the Assyrians overran the northern uh, portion of Israel, the kingdom of Israel at the time, and just wiped it out, never to be seen again. And then the same thing happened to the southern kingdom another century or so later, in 587 B.C., when the Babylonians did the same to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the Deuteronomists are really sort of advanced in their own thinking and looking ahead to see what is going to happen if they don't start turning the ship around. Unfortunately, all of their efforts were in vain because it happened anyways. But, as we've said before, the book, the center part of this book, chapters, what we call chapters 5 through 26, were spirited away to Babylon, and that is where they finally got the message. And so, once they realized why they were there, why they were captives, how they got there, and it was through their own fault, uh, they finally began to turn around, and when they came back from Babylon to Judah, they used the book of Deuteronomy as the basis for their revised vigor of Judaism. Okay. But in the meantime, we are studying what was and what was the efforts of the Deuteronomists to try to stem the tide of evil in the 9th and 8th century B.C. All right? And so you've got to keep in mind that they are pushing a cause. And so the efforts that they are trying to uh, get across are exaggerated in many ways because that's the only way they have of really emphasizing uh, certain points. You know, in the written word, they had no way to uh, highlight it or make it in bold or italics or whatever. That wasn't done because it was all handwritten. So, the method used for literature of all types of that time was to emphasize through repetition and exaggeration. So, that doesn't mean that you can take it and say, oh, well, that's exaggerated, we'll just water it down. No, 
That's not what you want to do. The thing is, take the message, not the words, and try to understand that. Let's go to, well, let's open to page 65, and right in the middle, the main commentary for uh, chapters 21 it says the next five chapters contains laws covering a wide variety of topics. They are not arranged in any particular order, but all serve to describe the pattern of Israel's life in the land. They all are supported by a single assumption. Obedience to these laws will help Israel secure its future in the land. Now, when it says obedience to these laws, it doesn't mean just these chapters. It means chapters 5 through 26, all of the laws that are really emphasized in the main part of this book. Okay? So, that's important. Now, under this whole uh, section called expiation of untraced murder, part of this, as it says right here in the commentary, Part of the way that these kinds of things were treated was through superstition. But what the Deuteronomists are trying to do is turn a superstition around and make it somewhat of a quasi-religious ceremony. And here is a point that is being made. If you go down to... Um, the word absolve, uh, verse 8. And it has continued on the next page. Absolve, O Lord, your people Israel, whom you have ransomed, and let not the guilt of shedding innocent blood remain in the midst of your people Israel. And thus they shall be absolved from the guilt of bloodshed. Now, if you go down into the paragraph in the in the uh, commentary, it says, The words of this prayer transform the remnants of a magical rite into an act of obedience to the law and a petition for mercy. So what they're doing is they're trying to get something that was a superstitious rite and turn it into something of a religious nature. All right. The Deuteronomic composition testifies to the belief that, and underline this, if you will, that forgiveness is an act of God's grace which cannot be manipulated, (laughs) manipulated by the performance of any ritual. Now, what I want to do is take that statement and apply it to something today that I have heard so often. Let me go back over that one last sentence. This Deuteronomic composition testifies to the belief that, belief by the Deuteronomist now, that forgiveness is an act of God's grace, right, which cannot be manipulated by the performance of any ritual. Now, what ritual today 
can you think of where that is probably being done by Catholics? Confession. Yes, by all means. How often have you heard someone say, oh, I can do that, and then I, I, cause I can go to confession on Saturday. Yeah, or I don't have to worry about that. I can just go to confession on Saturday. Well, confession is a religious rite, a sacrament. The essence of the sacrament is sorrow. If you are not truly sorrow, sorrowful and repentant of your wrongdoing, regardless how, of how bad or how light it might have been, your confession is invalid. Alright? So you can't take it for granted. Sorrow and a firm purpose of amendment is the main ingredient to make your confession valid. And if you go to confession solely as something to do to clear your conscience, but you don't really have any concept of regret or concept of I'm not going to do it again or I'm going to do my very best not to do it again, your confession is invalid. And sometimes you only make it worse if you've done that deliberately. So, this book and these particular writings written nearly 3,000 years ago are just as valid today as they were then. Does that make sense? Okay. And so that's the purpose of studying particularly the Old Testament. And we'll go on and show you some other things along the same way. Okay. Let's talk about, in the next section, marriage and family laws, including the rights of the firstborn. There is a statement in one of the Gospels that I didn't find, I can't remember it offhand, where the apostles asked Jesus about, is it lawful to divorce your wife? Or I guess the Pharisees really asked Jesus that question. Is it lawful to divorce your wife? And Jesus says to the Pharisees, what does the law say? And they said, well, Moses said that we could do that. And that's, of course, what it says in here, in a way. But Jesus says, that may have been true, but it only was because of the stubbornness of your heart. But that is not what God intended. God intended that marriage was one man and a woman forever. A commitment, all right, a vow, which we'll get into also because that is another subject here. A vow, and it is not meant as it is often depicted here. It says 
in the commentary. Though polygamy was practiced in ancient Israel, monogamy was far more common because of economic and social problems, such as those presented in this legislature. Later, for theological reasons, monogamy became the only form of marriage permitted by Judaism. Okay. It's hard enough to keep one spouse happy, let alone more than one. All right. Let's go over to this section on the right of firstborn. If a man with two wives loves one and dislikes the other, and if both bear him sons, but the firstborn is of her whom he dislikes, when he comes to bequeath his property to his sons, he may not consider as his firstborn the son of the wife he loves in preference to his true firstborn son. All right. Now, you have a, sim- a couple similar incidents in the, God- in the Old Testament stories. That of Abraham. Abraham was promised an heir by God. But God took his sweet time about getting around to that and helping out. So Abraham took matters into his own hands and according to Jewish custom and tradition, he took Sarah's uh, servant girl or slave girl, Hagar, and had a child by Hagar, Ishmael. Technically, Ishmael was Abraham's first son. Later, he did have a son by his wife, Sarah, who was Isaac. Now, the Bible also goes through and says that God rejected Ishmael as being the firstborn because he was of the slave girl rather than of the free wife or the free woman, Sarah, his true wife. Now, you got to remember that this was written by the Jewish people and much of it was written to serve their own needs. All right? But the problem that was created by that situation is Ishmael was was, um, sent off with his mother and became the father of all of the Arab tribes. And because Ishmael was the firstborn, and Jewish law said the firstborn inherits everything, but must take care of the others, that is what has caused the Jewish and the Arab conflict for nearly 4,000 years. So you can see a problem right there. You have another problem with Abraham's son, who then had twins, and the first one was Esau. First one to be born was Esau. There is a custom in that still exists in Jewish families that when a mother bears twins or more, triplets, whatever, 
the first one to be delivered, the first mail to be delivered, is marked uh, with a bracelet of some kind, I don't remember exactly what, to indicate that that child is the firstborn male. All right? Well, Esau was the firstborn male of Isaac, and Jacob was the second. But later on, as uh, young adults, they got into a little bit of situation, and Esau, in sort of uh, impetuous or impulsive way, sort of gave up his birthright uh, for a dinner that Jacob, uh, that, uh, Jacob, Jacob was cooking. All right? For that, God condemned Esau and favored Jacob, who then became the father of the twelve tribes. All right. So you have that kind of problem, and it still is an existing problem in Jewish families. All right. Does the firstborn inherit everything? Legally, that isn't binding any longer. But culturally, it still is. And it can be a serious problem. Let's go over to the section that says uh, corpse of a criminal. If the corpse isn't dead yet, right? if a man guilty of capital offense is put to death and his corpse hung on a tree. It shall not remain on the tree overnight, for you shall bury it the same day. Otherwise, since God's curse rests on him who hangs on a tree, you will defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What does that make you think of in the gospel stories? Have you ever wondered why Jesus was taken down from the tomb and buried right away? Hmm? Couple reasons. That was the law at the time. The Jewish law was that a person who dies must be buried within 24 hours, preferably on the same day before sundown. Uh, it has been extended, Jewish law now, cultural law that is, um, is now 24 hours. Okay, But at the time, it was preferably on the same day. More importantly, in the case of Jesus, the next day was Passover. And therefore, a great feast day, and they did not want the body to be um, placed somewhere uh, because one of the other rules or laws in this book is that touching a dead body would be a cause for um, being defiled. Okay, And you'd have to go through a purification ceremony which could not be done on Passover. So there were a couple reasons why Jesus' body was buried uh, right away. 
but what we're really getting to is the tree part, all right? Have you ever heard about Jesus taken down from the tree? All right. Quite often, a cross was not in the shape that we often see of it. We, when we say cross, we generally, can you all see that? Um, think of it in terms of looking like that. Most of the time, the crosses that were used were only the crossbar. And the criminal was tied to it and carried the crossbar from the prison or wherever to the place of execution. The vertical post was something that was generally already there, a more permanent. And quite often, it was a tree that had been there before, stripped of its leaves and, and branches, etc., and used as the main part of the cross. Okay, So, the curse was, and it goes all the way back to Leviticus, but let me read from something out of St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. It says, Christ, this is again, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. Christ has delivered us from the power of the law's curse by himself becoming a curse for us. As it is written, a curse is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And that comes out of Leviticus. This has happened so that through Christ Jesus, the blessing bestowed on Abraham might descend on the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, thereby making it possible for us to receive the promised, promised spirit through faith. Right? Now the reference I'm really saying here is Christ was recognized as being hung on a tree. Now, the whole idea is that anyone who was hanged on a tree and the only ones who were hanged deliberately were the lowest of criminals, the worst of criminals. All right, And so that is what Jesus really permitted was for himself to be considered the lowest of criminals, even though he was the king of kings and lord of lords. Right? And why? How many of you have ever thought, at least to yourself, or asked someone, why would Jesus really permit himself such a horrible death? And it, the only answer, the only answer that can be accepted is that it is only by going to the very depths of the bottom can you show the infinite love that not only Jesus exhibited for his Father and for us, and at the same time the extent 
of the love of the Father for all mankind by giving his Son to be the sacrificial lamb, the expiation for all of mankind's sins. Remember, mankind could never do anything of his own. He never has anything or could give anything of his own as a sacrifice to make up for even one sin, let alone sins of the whole world. And therefore, it had to be God himself coming to this earth in order to make reparation for the sins of mankind. And it was out of infinite love that that happened. Let's go over to a rather interesting uh, section. Uh, on page 69, right at the top of the page, you shall not sow your vineyard with two different kinds of seed. If you do, its produce shall become forfeit. That is forfeit for tithings, not for eating, but forfeit for tithing. All right, or, or uh, offering as first fruits. Both the crop you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. For you shall not plow with an ox and an ass harnessed together. You shall not wear cloth of two different kinds of thread, wool and linen woven together. Now, today you'd wonder, because almost everything is a combination of two or more uh, ingredients or two or more uh, forms of of fabric, not all of it is even natural. A lot of it is is man-made, you know, nylon, orlon, and all of those other kinds of things, um, polyester, etc. So the Jewish people technically could not wear that. Now, I'd like to digress a little bit and talk about something that you may like to do this summer. Here's a book that I highly recommend for a couple reasons. First of all, it's fun to read. Secondly, it will give you a lot of the background of Jewish customs and tradition. This is called The Year of Living Biblically. And the author, Al Jacobs, took all of the laws that the Jewish people observe as much as is possible and tried to live them to the letter of the law for one full year. And then, of course, he writes about his experience. And you can see this garment that he's wearing here, he actually did wear for a whole year because it is pure cotton. He couldn't wear anything that was uh, a combination of materials, all right? So he chose to wear all cotton, and he said it got pretty windy in New York City wearing this kind of stuff in the winter. And that's the kind of comment you'll, you'll get. Uh, I laugh halfway through it, but at the same time, it's a lot of fun, it's, it's, and you you really learned a lot. Uh, he's serious about it, 
but at the same time, he's got a very uh, amusing, entertaining way of presenting it. Okay, and so uh, I, I enjoyed reading, and, and I highly recommend it. It is light reading. It is not a religious book. Uh, it's more of his experience. He did this in a previous book called The Know-It-All, where he read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica, and then he wrote about his experience of trying to live up to some of those uh, items in the encyclopedia, where there's so much in there that I'd like to go back and read that, but I don't have time right now. Anyways, uh, I'll leave this up here if anyone wants to look at it afterwards. But that is one of the customs, this whole idea of wearing garments uh, that is only made of one kind of natural fiber. Okay. Deuteronomist wouldn't know anything about polyester. Down in the commentary section, um, let's read this because I want to bring up a point. One of the recognized scholarly pursuits in the ancient world was the classification of natural phenomena. These verses probably reflect a concern to respect the differences in nature that these classification efforts brought to light. Elements that are separate in nature should not be combined by human efforts. Well, that wouldn't go today, would it? Now, the point I'm trying to make here is rabbinic Judaism took up and developed this Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic concern. An entire tract of the Mishnah is devoted to the elaboration and application of the principle behind these verses. Rabbinic Judaism did not come into common usage until the 4th century A.D., almost 500 years after Christ. Remember, in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed along the temple, with the temple being destroyed, and Judaism was dispersed, never to be replaced until 1948 through the good graces of the uh, United Nations. But in... I don't remember the exact year uh, because it took quite a while. So, But in the 4th century, they, many of the uh, prominent Jews came together and tried to at least reestablish some form of Judaism. And again, they went back to the book of Deuteronomy and established the what they call modern Judaism based on the book of Deuteronomy, but also the Mishnah and the Talmud were very important books. Uh, the Mishnah is a commentary on Judah, um, on Jewish scripture. The Talmud is the interpretation of the laws as they applied to the people at that particular time. So they are com- uh, they are complementary books, all right. 
Mishnah is commentary and Talmud is interpretation. <laughs> so those things, like I said, but it, I think, makes it kind of clear. It says, this is another bit of Deuteronomic legislation that became quite important in rabbinic Judaism of the 4th century. Matthew 23, uh, verse 5, testifies to the concern of Jesus' contemporaries over the observance of this law. It is still observed by modern Orthodox Jews, such as in that book, all right, who attach tassels to a special inner garment that they wear. Again, the origin and purpose of this law are really unknown. And they're talking about the um, phylacteries and the uh, tassels that are often used in the Jewish ceremonies. You'll see them uh, even today on prayer shawls. Okay? In uh, the synagogues, men wear the prayer shawls along with the Hanukkah. All right, the little skull cap. Okay, you know, remove them. Okay, let's let enough said. All right, but down in the commentary, it says this legislation has a rather narrow view on the full membership in the community of Israel, and that is because the Deuteronomists were pushing purity of the nation. Remember, in the ninth and the eighth century, the people had disregarded and abandoned the law that Moses had set up about uh, not marrying outside of your own tribe. Let's let alone a person from another nation. And by the way, the word nation, as it is used here, when translated back into the Hebrew, Comes out what? Gentile. That's where the word Gentile comes from. It is the Hebrew translation for the word nation. But it didn't come into common usage until much later. Alright? So, when it talks about the nations, it's talking about anybody who is not a Jew. And that's the definition for a Gentile. Anybody who is not a Jew. Okay. <clears throat> says, this attitude is understandable given the situation in which Deuteronomy was written. It was a time when Israel's very existence was threatened by both internal and external forces. It is little wonder that the Deuteronomists were not in a very uh, inclusive mood as they dealt with the question of who should be admitted to full membership in the community. And that is because there were so many of the Jewish leaders in that time who went outside not only of their tribe but outside of their own people. And Ahab, uh, King Ahab married Jezebel who was not a Jew and she was one of the primary causes of bringing a lot of the uh, pagan influences into Israel. Okay. Uh, of course, if you read the whole story of Ahab and, and Jezebel, it's interesting because 
she died a, a very gruesome death as her punishment. Okay. Over on the next page, 72, a sense of shame. Shame, and I'm reading from the commentary part, shame was a more powerful force among the ancient Israels, Israelites than it is among people of contemporary Western culture. And my God, today uh, there is no such thing as shame. <clears throat> These laws specify certain actions as expressions of that sense of shame. In a positive light, one can say that Deuteronomy here reflects an ancient, reflects ancient Israel's concern for dignity and hygiene. Deuteronomy wants to maintain these standards. Later, the community at Qumran, that is the Essenes, uh, will be marked by sol- a strong s- solicitude regarding the same issues. The practices of that community show a further specification of the general laws found here, and that would be in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Now, shame was far more um, of an embarrassment. And that is why when people were crucified, they were always crucified naked, totally naked, all right? Because that was the ultimate in shame. So it's like really adding insult to injury, uh, but that is why, all right? Because the Romans, uh, the Jewish people themselves did not crucify, it was the Romans who used crucifixion, and of course it was the Jewish people who manipulated the Romans into crucifying Christ. Later on, of course, the Romans got back at them by destroying Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, But nevertheless, shame, and even today, the people, people of the Mideast cultures not only the Jews, but the Arabs of all of those, really have uh, an aversion to shame of any kind. And of course, well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, actually if she has an affair with uh, anybody, and she is not married to that person, that is shaming the family. Uh, whereas, if a young man has an affair with some girl outside and gets caught, gets slapped on the wrist. You know, but that's about it. But uh, a young man can bring shame upon the family, for example, running off and marrying a girl from another class or culture. So that would bring shame to the family as well. Or if the young man did not follow uh, the father's um, trade or uh, profession that could be shame on the family in some cases all right so yes uh, there are different rules and different uh, punishments for men versus women okay let's go over to 23 at the bottom of page 72. 
<coughs> talks about various vows. Okay. The making of vows out of religious devotion. Seventy-three. What did I say? Hmm? Well, I'm only off one. See. Ah, okay. All right. With you, it's all on the same page, though, isn't it? Okay. The making of vows out of religious devotions is not a required but a permitted form of piety. Once people commit themselves to some form of action by a vow, it is important that they fulfill the vow. Unfulfilled vows create an atmosphere in which it becomes acceptable to countenance failures in Israel's relationship with God. Okay. Now, that's, of course, talking about marriage vows particularly. But what about today? Keeping a vow today just doesn't seem to have the same degree of importance, really, among anyone. But when you stop and think about it, what about our sacraments? All of our sacraments are vows. When you are baptized, particularly when you are baptized as an adult, and you know what you are doing, you are taking a vow and committing yourself to God through Jesus Christ. Confirmation is another vow. The sacrament of the Eucharist is a vow because you are partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Holy orders and matrimony are obvious vows for the, those who are participate in those particular, those particular sacraments. They're a little more obvious than the others, but all of the sacraments that we have today are vows. And if they are not fulfilled and maintained as such, they either are valid or you are sinning again. But people don't think about it that way, as we've just said earlier about the sacrament of uh, confession or reconciliation, as it properly should be called. Now, you can't sin and say, well, I can go to confession on Saturday or Tuesday or whenever. And, you know, it'll be all right again. Uh-uh. No. Because that implies that there is no true spirit of contrition there and no idea or concept of remorse or trying not to commit that particular sin again. So if you do those things, then you are only making the situation worse. And so keep in mind, yes ma'am. Well, 
keep them in mind because I have a eerie feeling that not all of you agree with me. There. All right. Let us let us go on to um, something that is puzzling, and we brought it up before. And this is on page 75. 74 is on the left, 75 is on the right. Verse 8. This is about the Levitical priests. Okay. In an attack of leprosy, you shall be careful to observe exactly and to carry out all of the directions of the Levitical priest. Take care to act in accordance with the instructions I have given them. Now remember, quite often there are stories in the Gospels where Jesus heals leprosy uh, and then sends off, there's uh, seven men I think, or seven or eight, hmm? ten, all right, whatever, uh, the more the merrier. Uh, that are healed and only one returns, you know, okay. The point is Jesus is telling them to fulfill this law, that he is sending them to the priest, and why? It is an act of faith, for one thing, on the part of the men, because he doesn't heal them on the spot, he heals them on the way. All right. So you can imagine out of the ten men that some are going to say, Ooh, look, I'm healed and run off and tell mama or, you know, the wife or whatever. And others are going to be so taken by this that they're just going to go to the nearest pub and, and have a beer or whatever. And very few of them will probably do what is prescribed by the priest. But that is the whole idea. And that is the whole idea behind our act of confession or our sacrament of confession. Quite often I get this uh, question, why do I have to go to a priest uh, to hear my confession? Well, part of the answer is that the church tells us that this is a sacrament and it has certain requirements as a ritual. But there are other reasons as well. If it was not a requirement, would you actually do anything about it? The mere fact of going to confession is the outward sign of your repentance. Or should be. Should be. Okay. So, the other point that is to be made on that subject of why do I have to go to a priest is that the priest represents not only God and the church, but he represents all of the people of God. All right. It used to be, years ago, and way back in the early, early days of the church, that the only form of repentance was to stand outside a church and ask the people for forgiveness as they go in. 
Well, that would be a little bit difficult today. You'd have a thousand people outside the door, and uh, it would create a little bit of a problem. All right. And so around the 10th century, the church then allowed the monks in the monasteries to represent the people. All right. Because it was thought that the monks in the monasteries had no outside contact and therefore they would not spill the beans, so to speak, and gossip about who did what. Uh, well, later that was relaxed a little bit and allowed the priesthood, which did not really develop until around the 10th century AD, uh, to hear confessions. And so, our whole sacrament of reconciliation has evolved over the years, all right, from something that was rather uh, difficult and embarrassing of standing outside the church and asking for forgiveness uh, to, you know, closeting yourself in a little dark room and behind a screen or whatever, or face to face with one person. Okay. I'm glad that that change has come about. Now, it's talking about the Levitical priests and underline the word Levitical priests. This is the priesthood that was established way back by God through Aaron and Joshua. Okay. Over a period of time, the tribe of Levi, who became the Levitical priests, multiplied way beyond the capacity to use all of those people. And therefore, gradually, over a period of three or four or five hundred years, it went from Levitical priests to temple priests. Those who were, you might say, cloistered in the temple and spent all of their time uh, in the temple uh, with the ceremonies and the rituals and so forth that took place there. The Levitical priest uh, died out pretty much after the Babylonian captivity. But there was a remnant of that culture and that whole idea of the prestige of being a Levitical priest carried forward. John the Baptist's father was a Levitical priest. And that was what he was doing in the temple at the time the angel appeared to him saying that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son who would be called John. And if you read that story, it was that he was, uh, it was his appointed time to be, uh, serving in their for a week, I think it was, intended to be a week, all right? Because he was a Levitical priest. All right. <clears throat> Let's go over to uh, 24, 20, chapter 24, verse 17 to 22. Says the, the gleaning. There's a couple couple points I want to make out of this gleaning. 
you probably have all studied art at one time in your life, and you know that there's a very famous painting called The Gleaners. Uh, that actually was a Jewish custom of when a farmer would go through his vineyard uh, or his wheat field or somebody would... Yes, ma'am? Huh? I, I, on the bottom page of 76. All right. Okay. When a farmer would go through and harvest his crops, he was permitted to go through once but not strip everything out of the uh, field or the trees or whatever, leaving a small amount there for the poor, the widow, etc. Okay. Um, and that was a Jewish custom and was maintained for centuries. <coughs> All right. Down to the point of time that when Jesus and his disciples let me uh, says once on the Sabbath Jesus walked through the standing grain which was permitted his disciples felt hungry so they began to pull off the heads of grain and eat them which was again permitted when the Pharisees spied this they protested see here your disciples are doing what is not permitted on the Sabbath. It wasn't that they, they weren't permitted to pull the, the grain because that was left there. It was the Sabbath, which was the point in this particular case. All right? Jesus replied, Have you not read what David did when he and his men were hungry and how he entered God's house and ate the holy bread, a thing forbidden to him and his men or anyone other than priests? Have you not read in the law how the priests on the temple duty can break the Sabbath rest without incurring guilt? I assure you, there is something greater than the temple here. If you understood the meaning of the text, it is mercy I desire and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned these innocent men. For the Son of Man is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. And in John's Gospel, it uses words a little differently. It says uh, that Jesus is, no, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay. The point that I was just making, though, is the beginning of the story when they were going through the grain uh, field and pulling off the heads of grain and eating them. Uh, I'm sure all of you have tried that. Uh, at some point in time. It uh, doesn't taste very good, but uh, that's beside the point. If you're hungry, uh, it serves a purpose. Okay. Uh, incidentally, I think uh, that reading and the one from John's Gospel where it says um, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, is very important also because the Jewish people had a law, of course, that you could do no work whatsoever. And in fact, they practically tied your hands and feet. That is, the laws tied your hands and feet and didn't really permit you to do much of anything on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, well, that's not 
exactly very practical. For example, don't you uh, unloosen your uh, cattle and perhaps horses uh, and allow them to drink and eat on the Sabbath? Doesn't that work? If uh, your son fell into a well, wouldn't you drop everything and go to get him out of there, even if it required a lot of work? So there are times when being um, charitable, and I'm using that in a very uh, generic and a very um, way, light way, being charitable to your neighbor, being loving to your neighbor, overrides the need for observing the Sabbath or for going to church on Sunday. There are times when you have to make a decision and if it requires helping somebody out who is desperately in need, then that need overrides the need to go to Mass on Sunday, even for Catholics. Okay. On page 27, that's on the right side now. I was wondering if you were catching me, say. 77, yes, all right, at the top. It talks about uh, 40 stripes may be given him. You know, this is somebody that is being flogged. If the latter deserves stripes, the judge shall have him lie down and in his presence receive the number of stripes, that is, whiplashes, um, his guilt deserves. Forty stripes may be given him, but no more. <laughs> Lest if he were beaten with more stripes than these, your kinsman should be looked upon as disgraced because of the severity of the beating. How many of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? Did you notice that when Christ is being whipped, the soldiers in the back are chanting in Latin, uno, duo, tre, quattro, okay, yes, all the way up to 39, because that was the limit at the time that they were allowed because of this law. I know, but the Romans picked up the same law. And a lot of these laws, and you make a point, Anna, a lot of these laws were not just for Jewish people. A lot of these laws were used by other nations as well, because many of them came from other nations to begin with. Remember when the Jews were in Egypt, they picked up a lot of Egyptian traits, customs, and traditions when they were in Babylon. They picked up a lot of the same customs and traditions, and they brought them back with them. Because, for example, those people who were born in Egypt, or those people who were born in Babylon, they didn't know anything about the customs back in Israel. All they knew was what was around them. And so when they returned, they brought all of those customs with them. So many of these laws uh, predate Judaism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to get over to 
chapter 26, verse 16, on page 8880. The covenant. Remember in the first two or three meetings of this course, I talked about the importance of the covenant. The covenant was the promise that God made first with Abraham and renewed all the way down the line with all the patriarchs and all of the leaders of Judaism down through the centuries. All right? And it was primarily a land-based type of covenant because that's all the people knew at the time. It promised descendants, it promised land, and it promised God's protection. Okay. But the people had abandoned the basic meaning of the covenant several times. And what the Deuteronomists here are trying to turn them around and get to see that it is only by obedience to the covenant that they would survive. And so they tried to institute this whole idea of a ceremony of recommitment. Okay. <laughs> it says in the commentary here, well, let's, let's read the, the actual scripture, beginning with verse 16. This day um, emphasis on this day, meaning now. The Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and decrees. He's talking about all the laws of this book. Be careful then to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. For today, again now, you are making this agreement with the Lord. He is to be your God and you are to walk in his ways and observe his statutes commandments and decrees and to hearken to his voice and today again now the Lord is making this agreement with you you are to be a people peculiarly his own as he promised you and provided you keep all of his commandments he will then raise you high in praise and renown and glory above all the other nations he has made and you will be a people sacred to the Lord your God, as he promised. Okay. Now, this was to be a recommitment ceremony, it says. But down below, it says, the Deuteronomic Code, which began with chapter 12, concludes with a mutual declaration of commitment made by both God and Israel. The people proclaim their allegiance to God and through Moses, God assures the people of the blessings that come to the obedient. Now let me stop here for a minute. The way this book presents the word obedient or obedience, it sounds pretty legalistic. It sounds, you know, like Sister Mary Agnes standing over you with a ruler. And saying, you know, if you don't behave, I'm going to whop you in the head or something. That wasn't what they meant. We should not think about it as harsh and cruel as it sounds. 
because as it has implied or actually stated in previous chapters, obedience to God is synonymous with love. You are loving God because of his infinite goodness and what he has done for you. There is a, a very common popular phrase or a Protestant tract that says, uh, your life is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift to God. And that is kind of what obedience means in the Deuteronomic tradition. It doesn't mean, you know, that thou shalt do this, and if you don't, you get, you know, go straight to hell. It means that you are not showing love and respect for God and the traditions that He has asked you to observe, customs and traditions. All right. <clears throat> so keep in mind, obedience sounds pretty harsh in our usage today, uh, but it wasn't meant that way. <laughs> Uh, the people proclaim their allegiance to God through Moses. God assures the people in the blessings that come uh, to the obedient. The triple occurrence of today, the word today, reflects a liturgical assembly at which Israel once again accepts the law as constitutive of its relationship with God. One effect of this relationship is Israel's great renown among the nations. A national life lived in accord with the divine law cannot but help reflect divine glory. The substance of this ritual of recommitment or covenant renewal serves as the conclusion of the Deuteronomic Code as well as a transition to what follows. Moses' serious warning regarding the desire or, or the dire consequences that come to a disobedient Israel. And with that, we end sort of the main body of the book of Deuteronomy. And chapter 27 uh, begins the conclusion or the final words of Moses because all of these are uh, constructed as speeches or teachings uh, put in the mouth of Moses, although they were written uh, hundreds of years later. Okay, And includes many things that Moses never knew anything about. But that's all right. The whole idea was the importance of who Moses was and the respect that was always given to Moses. He, in the eyes of the Jewish people, is the most influential person in the Old Testament, and rightly so. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tries to uh, tries desperately to turn that around and have people look at Jesus as being the new Moses, and he does a pretty good job, although. <coughs> uh, Jesus goes far beyond Moses ever did. But nevertheless, 
Uh, that's the way Matthew wants us to look at Jesus as the new Moses. And he did that for a reason. Matthew wrote his gospel for his own contemporaries, hoping to convince them that Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, and therefore was rightly so the new Moses. Unfortunately, um, he didn't succeed. Matthew didn't succeed very well. Next week is our last week. We will be covering chapters 21 through, I mean 27 through, I think it's 33, 32, 33. Yeah. Now, that sounds like a lot, but these are short chapters. But there is a lot of very powerful information in there. So let us not uh, gloss over it too quickly. 27 through 33 is Moses' final words, Moses' death and burial, and the conclusion of the book. Now, many people still, even today, think that Moses wrote this book. Uh, you know, they ignore history, they ignore research, they just think Moses wrote this book. Well, uh, that would be nice, but he couldn't write about his own death and burial. Be a little difficult. <clears throat> okay. Anyways, next week also, um, I would like to talk about what you would like to study and discuss in our next session, which will begin in mid-September. Uh, anybody got any great ideas right now? No one. Uh, well, I'm not going to voice my opinion, at least not tonight. Uh, but I would like really to hear what you would like to study, taking into consideration uh, that it can be no more than um, ten weeks. Okay, that's is we are going to here at at St. Clair are going to have other kinds of educational lectures on Tuesday evening uh, in between the Bible study sessions on individual subjects for each week. And there will be, um, Father Arthur is going to give a DVD presentation on uh, some of the subjects that I'm not quite aware of what they are right now. I'm not even sure that he's uh, pinned it down, but nevertheless, uh, he's going to give uh, eight or ten weeks, and then there will be individual lectures on Tuesday night here in this room, uh, almost every Tuesday, except for the Tuesday uh, during Holy Week, uh, the Tuesday before Christmas, that kind of thing, you know, too close to a major holiday. But other than that, I think they will be of great interest. Uh, one of the subjects that we've already identified will be the changes in the Mass, which will begin with Advent of this year. In uh, 
in latter part of November, uh, when Advent starts, the words of the Mass will change, uh, not significantly, but here and there. We want to have a lecture or two uh, to describe what these changes are and where they came from and why. Okay. Another lecture will be on end-of-life issues. Uh, many people are um, either misinformed or totally uninformed about what the church requires when a person is uh, nearing death, but not in imminent death, and the difference between approaching death and imminent death. All right? The requirements are different. All right? And there's a number of other issues that we want to talk about. So those will be hopefully interesting subjects that will be on a one subject per evening basis. Okay. All right. I have taught Matthew many times. Um, and that's a possibility. That's a possibility, yes. Uh, Matthew is a very interesting uh, gospel to teach, and it's a good place for beginners because it is so well-structured for teaching. Uh, it is very clear. It includes the infancy stories, so it is very inclusive. All right. One thing that I would like to have all of you think about for our next session is finding some new person who is not currently a member of this group to bring to the group. We should have, you know, if we have four to 5,000 families in this parish, we should have this room filled three or four times over. And many of the people that are in here are from other parishes. Uh, so what I would like to see is each of you recruit somebody, don't hogtie them, you know, and drag them in, uh, but recruit somebody that will be willing and wanting to come next year or the next session uh, based on what you have told them. Remember, evangelization is everybody's responsibility. Lord, we thank you for permitting us the time to really get into some of the nitty-gritty of Scripture to see how it affects us. But more importantly, help us to see your infinite goodness that it abounds throughout Scripture and the love that you shower on all of us as we sincerely pursue our understanding of Scripture. So help us to open our minds and our hearts to really see you not so much dictating the words, but giving us the message through your Holy Spirit. So we thank you for this time together. And we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only for the coming week, but for the rest of our life as we live Scripture. For that is when it truly becomes the Word of God. So we thank you for this time together. 
We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.